0: And they offer you food that's been sacrificed to idols. Should we eat that or not? We've touched on some of this in the last few weeks. But behind these specific questions, many of which, uh, most of which probably you, you are never going to face specifically, um, there are some broader questions about guiding principles by which we live our lives. So for some of the Corinthians and for many of us, the only question we ask is, what can I do? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? What am I free to do? What what is permissible for me? What, What is not? And we just stay at that level. And what Paul is doing is helping us take a step back. Life is about more than merely abiding by laws, being a good person, doing enough to acquire God's favor and get to heaven. God does not merely give us a cold set of laws just to to try to follow the best of our ability, divorced from any relationship, divorced from trust and, and love and faith. Just try to abide by these commands, and that's the whole point of life. No, that's not what God wants from us. Christianity introduces us to a living relationship with a living and ruling creator God. And because he is living and ruling and he has certain characteristics, well, yes, there, there are certain commands that, that fit under his character, that align with his character. But we can't divorce the commands from him and his love and get the same result. The, the commands that we find in Scripture are not an end to themselves. They are part of a living relationship with our God. You can think about the, the two great commandments, right? That Jesus says, Jesus sums up all of the many commands in the Old Testament, 613 or whatever, Old Testament commands that we could say about the same commands that we find in the New Testament, and Jesus sums it all up as all of this is pointing to, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love of God, and love your neighbor as yourself, love of God, love for one another. That's the point. And that is largely the message, though presented a little bit differently, but that is largely the message of the passage before us today, to step back and ask these big questions about what are we doing, what are we living for, what is the purpose to all of these things. So we'll start with the first couple verses. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Uh, Now, we've encountered this all things are lawful phrase before, back in chapter 6. It is likely a a phrase that the Corinthians were saying, and uh, Paul is responding to to them here. Apparently, some in the church think that because of the grace that is ours in Christ, because of the, the knowledge of reality in the world that is ours in Christ, We are free to engage in all things. Nothing is off limits, no need to restrain ourselves. If we're not under law anymore, but under grace, are we not free to live as we please? Don't we have this sort of liberty and freedom and permissibility to do and engage in all things? Now, in context, here in 1 Corinthians, this had a very specific definition. tenor or flavor to it. So there were some in the church who, having come to Christ, had the knowledge, and it was correct knowledge, that idols were nothing. Idols were not real. They were not real gods. And so all of the worship and the sacrifices and the feasts that would happen in in the, the city to these idols, it wasn't really to any real being. So they assumed, so they said, Christians should be free to engage in these cultural festivities, to do and go where everyone else was and to do what they were doing. And yet others in the church were apparently not so sure. Some in the church, having come out of pagan worship to Christ, didn't have the freedom in their conscience to go back into these situations and engage in these things freely. They, for them, they couldn't do that with a clear conscience. And so which side would Paul land on? Would he be for freedom or for constraint? Where would he draw the line? Well, he does draw some lines, as we'll get through this and we'll see. But more important than that, he shows the insufficiency of their questions. Life as a child of God is not simply figuring out what you are free to do and then going and doing it as much as you can. Just because we may be free to do something doesn't mean we ought to do it. Doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean it's loving. This is ultimately a a very selfish way of living, right? What can I get away with? What am I free to do? And if that's our only barometer, our only measure of what we do with our lives, it is ultimately a selfish way of living. And we can clothe it in religious language, right? We can say, well, I'm free in Christ, I'm just taking advantage of grace. It's like going to an all-you-can-eat buffet and getting the most out of your, your entrance fee. Well, I'm getting 20 plates. I'm, I'm making it make enough for others who didn't need enough. Getting all the grace I can. But that ignores the love and, and doing what is good for others, and that ignores the love of God and living for the glory of God. Instead, God's people, saved by grace, are called to love one another. To ask other questions, like what will be good for my brother or sister in Christ? What will work to build one another up? Paul says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Elsewhere in Galatians, he writes, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So part of what God calls us to as his people is to actually think less about ourselves, to think less about ourselves and more about others. And that's very hard in the world we live in because we have a million excuses and justifications for why we ought to be thinking about ourselves first, right? We have things like self-help, self-care, all of these self-focused things, self-love, self-respect, you sometimes hear it said that, you know, when we're told to love, love our neighbor as ourselves, surely the most important thing we need to, or that at least the first thing we need to do is love ourselves, right? And I'm not saying that there's no benefit in any of those broad categories, but it is absolutely clear that that's not where the Bible's emphasis lies. If anything, it lies on, do not seek your own good, but the good of others. The Bible's emphasis is on turning our attention less and less to ourselves and more to others. Seek the good of your neighbor. Now, why would we do this? Why, why would anyone ever do this? Um, this is not natural to any culture right? This is not natural to any individual. The problem is not simply that we live in a very individualistic, self-focused society, and if so, if we could just go and kind of fix our society or get out of this society, then we would naturally just seek other people's goods over our own. No, that's not the problem. The problem is we are sinners with a disposition that loves ourselves more than others and more than God. So what we need to hear is the Word of God what we need to see is the heart of God for us. Jesus says in John 13, Just as I have loved you, so there's the basis, so you also are to love one another. It begins with who God is and how he has loved us, and then he calls us to go love one another. You find this all over Scripture. Paul in Romans 15 says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. So even our creator, almighty God, did not live merely to please himself. He goes on and says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So this all is rooted in, grounded in who God is and how he is, what he has done for us. He does not love and welcome and give himself for the sins of those who already love him back. He does not love and welcome and give himself for the sins of those who don't need much help and are easy to love. No, he pursues and initiates and willingly gives himself to die for the sin- sins of his enemies, for those who are, who are running away from him, those who had no claim to anything good from him. The, the God, almighty God of all creation, loves us humbly, humbly, sacrificially, and at great cost to himself. And when we behold that, when we grasp that, it compels us, it changes us. That is the foundation of the call for us to love one another. This is not merely a humanistic concern, oh, you should care about other people for the sake of humanity. This is not merely a utilitarian, like, practical concern. Oh, you'll feel better about yourself if you love other people. Most of the time, that's probably true, but that's not what this is saying. You should love other people. You should serve and give yourself for others because that is how God has acted towards you. And we should treat our fellow image bearers' creations in a similar way. And as we do that, we honor him. We communicate and give witness to him. Now, we could spend a lot of time unpacking what this looks like. Obviously, there's a million ways to to love one another. Uh, Paul has given a couple specific examples through these chapters. I'll just look at them briefly. Um, So first, there is a consideration of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Am I living in such a way that will encourage and strengthen and build up my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or am I doing things that would lead them to stumble and lead them into sin? just as God's love for us encourages and strengthens us and revitalizes us, so we should seek to do this for others. And I can tell you that where this gets tested, where this actually bears fruit, is when it's really hard to do, is when there is actually no benefit. In in fact, it brings harm to you to love somebody else. It doesn't mean there's times like you don't put up some boundaries and, and consider what is good for you. But where love your neighbor as yourself actually fleshes out from anything different than we would do naturally is when there's no benefit in it and when it's hard. And when it has a cost. I mean, if that was the approach God took to us, like, I love you unless it costs me, none of us would be here today. Secondly, there's the consideration of evangelism. Am I living in such a way that creates opportunities to share the gospel? So the last couple of verses of this chapter, we'll, we'll get to them, but I'll read them now as well. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So back to the issue of freedom. There are many things that we are free to do that we could potentially do with our time, our resources, our money, our relationships. That would not be a benefit to those around us, including those who do not know Christ. The question is not simply what am I free to do, but how can I use my time and resources and energy How can I sacrifice these things even, my comforts and my freedom, so that others might hear the gospel, others might see God at work and respond? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, obviously, that is the second of the the two great commandments. We can't, can't stop there. That's not what the end of God, that ha- God has for us. In fact, to live our lives seeking to love others, but ignore and reject God, which is the way many people live, is not, is not to get most of it right, and then, of course, God's understands, and no, it is com- to completely miss the mark. To, to love others with no concern for the glory and presence and will of God is to neither love God nor to truly love others who God has created. And so Paul turns now to this issue of the glory of God. This is the ultimate thing. This is ultimately why we are here. What we are to be about. This is the ultimate guiding principles principle of our lives. The glory of God. Paul gets there in kind of a roundabout way, though. So we'll read the rest of this passage. I'll unpack some of this. We'll spend some time considering the glory of God. Verse 25 Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So just understand the context a little bit here. The apparent charge that some of the Corinthians are bringing against Paul is that he acted one way in one situation and another way in another situation. So sometimes he'd eat meat that was offered to idols, and sometimes he wouldn't. Sometimes he seemed very serious and restrictive about idolatry. See chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10, which we covered. But sometimes he seemed more liberal and free, like like here. And so Paul's just wishy-washy. He's a people pleaser. He's just trying to, to do whatever group wants, that he's a part of, wants him to do. That's, that's the charge. And he basically says, you're right. But here's why. Because it not only matters what you do, but why you do it. And sometimes the why, not always, but sometimes, the why determines the what. If the why, if the reason, behind your living and how you are guiding your life and the decisions you are making is to bring glory to God, including through serving others, then sometimes how you live changes based on the context. Sometimes. You're willing to adjust if the glory and witness of God depends on it. You're ch- willing to change how you live proceed or how you engage in certain things depending on the context. You're not only concerned about rules and laws and commands, which have a purpose and are good if they're from God, but also about loving God and loving others. Now, it's obvious that what is in view here are morally indifferent matters, right? There's no worshiping an idol that is justified because the context depended on it, right? There's no giving in to anger or bitterness or, or lust for the sake of witness. Those are not morally indifferent matters. There, there are many things which do not honor God and His will, no matter how or what our intentions and heart may be. But there are many other things for which context does matter, and in which we may be able to glorify God by either partaking and engaging or refraining, perhaps in what we eat or don't eat, in how we diet or don't, in what we do with our time and our money, in how we engage the community and evangelize and seek to disciple in the things that we give ourselves to. In many things, there's no written rule that says this is the one and only way you have to engage in this as a Christian. This is the only way to be faithful. It's not so much about looking for a specific law to follow as it is about asking what would most build up others, what would most bring glory to God. And I think if we're honest, this is difficult. It's much easier to simply live by rules and to have rules and laws that apply in every situation. You just make a list of rules for which to follow. Don't do this, do this. doesn't matter the context or the situation or the motivation. You don't need to consider wisdom. You don't need to consider other people, because that complicates things. Just do this, don't do that. How easy it is to distort Christianity into just human-centered morality, do good, be a good person, don't engage in these real serious sins, raise kids that are good and moral, or to go the other way, as the Corinthians are, and say, well, there are no real laws, there are no real black and white things, everything's lawful, we're free to pursue and indulge anything and everything, as long as you do it for the glory of God, surely he's pleased and others will be helped, one commentator points out, Craig Blomberg, he says, it is, of course, far easier and requires far less thought to adopt one of these options consistently, either pure separatism, just separating yourself from everything, or pure indulgence. But neither of these courses of action is in the gospel's best interests. So as, as you go through some of what Paul's saying here, like if you knew the kind of Jewish... Um, intuitions and feelings about things, like when Paul says, just eat whatever's given to you, like that would have been like, what? No, you got you to gotta check to make sure it wasn't offered to an idol. So sometimes he's very liberal, but sometimes he's very like, do not go to the feast of idols, like don't engage idol worship. And sometimes he's very conservative and lays down hard and fast rules. But pursuing one of those or the other just setting rules and just living by rules alone, or engaging and giving yourself to all things, both of those can be incredibly selfish and unloving. You can be a selfish, law-abiding person or a selfish, freedom-embracing person. You can fail to seek the good of others and think only of yourself by merely following rules or by merely pursuing and indulging in freedom. None of these things requires you to actually care and love about others. More than that, you can reject God in both of these ways. You can reject God in moral ways and immoral ways. You can look for your salvation by abiding by laws or by being a law unto yourself. Either way, the glory of God is not your ultimate concern. And it seems that these are the only two paths that are before us, right? This is what the world presents. You have this way or this way, and both are forms of self-salvation and ways of rejecting God. And what God says is, whatever you do, do it all for my glory. Seek my kingdom and will above your own, as we prayed earlier. Love me first and then love others. The the overarching matter, the, the, the ultimate guiding principle for our lives is the glory of God. And morality, how we ought to live, exists, but it only exists underneath and for that purpose. Certain things are right and wrong, as God teaches us in his word, because they either Communicate and display and lift up the character and will of God, or they mar and disparage and communicate a false message about it. Again, God is not after people who merely follow rules, who are good, law, moral, law abiding citizens. He is after people who delight to live for His glory. And this is why. God doesn't give us merely a book of commands. This is why God doesn't only speak to us and tell us what to do and not to do, but he gives us himself. And he shows us his heart. And he draws us to himself. And he gives us his spirit that we might know and love him. His aim is to change our hearts and our desires and our affections and not just our outward behavior. He aims to form us into people who love and seek Him, not as a means to an end, not as a means to feel better about ourselves, but because He is good and worthy. And I am, I am sure that in a church like this, In any church that there are some of you who have not yet grasped this and I'm sure that in all of our beings there are there are areas where we have not grasped this where we still have small views of God where it is ultimately still about just what should I do what should I not do or perhaps we've moved past that and like the Corinthians found out that we can do anything and everything. Thank God for freedom. But we do not live for the glory of God. And what we need is to behold the glory of God. Ultimately in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And to be changed through that and by his spirit. Until this happens, we will not live for him no matter how many rules we attempt to follow or do follow, no matter how religious we want we try to be, apart from beholding the glory of God, we will not live for His glory as He intends and calls for us to do. Do all to the glory of God. Um, I looked it up. The word all here, guess what it means? All. Every. This pertains to literally everything we do, we are not called to live for the glory of God merely on Sundays, merely in religious settings, only when we pray and read our Bibles. Every aspect of our life, we are called to live for the glory of God. At work, at school, at home, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our play, in our recreation, in our pains and struggles, our anxieties, our relational tensions in our temptations and our repenting do all to the glory of God because he's worth it, because he's good, because that's what we were created to do, because that's what we will be doing for eternity. And there's joy in doing it even now. We're going to take communion now, and we're going to do it to the glory of God. Because God has deemed that he is glorified in giving his son to die for us. In humbling himself and suffering and shedding his body and blood for us. And that that we cannot behold and partake and cast ourselves on that enough. There's no limit to the grace that is ours there. So, Invite you to come to the table today with confidence that no, no sin, no guilt or shame is too much for the cross, past, present, or future. And cast yourself on Him as a sufficient Saver and good and rightful Lord. Let's pray.